If you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Jonah, Old Testament book. I'm not going to read the book like we did last week, um, but I will read uh, chapter 2. I'm going to start actually the last verse of chapter 1. So it's going to be, I'm going to read Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10. Um, before I do that, I, I need to actually uh, make somewhat of a confession here. They say confession is good for the soul, right? Um, last week, I misspoke. I said something that was incorrect. In my message, I said that uh, Nahum and Zephaniah had a prophecy about Nineveh's destruction before Jonah, and Jonah would have known about that. That's incorrect. I flipped the dates. Nahum and Zephaniah came, or Zechariah came after Jonah, so he wouldn't have known that. And so I just need to make sure I corrected that. I, somehow I flipped the dates and when I was studying last week for that, so I just want to make sure I gave that correction uh, this week uh, about that. Uh, there was a study in 2014 uh, from the University of Columbia. It was a school of business, and they were making a study about... Uh, people interacting in the workplace, and they did three different studies, actually, where these team of researchers measured the effects of ostracism and harassment in the workplace. Uh, the researchers defined ostracism as an individual or a group neglecting to take actions that engage another coworker when it would be customary or appropriate to do so. So in other words, ostracism involved anything from having one's greeting go ignored to being included from invitations or going silent when another coworker tried to enter the conversation. Surprisingly, the study concluded that ostracism or being ignored, which seems better than overt harassment, was actually more painful to the people in the study. Uh, one of the lead authors of the study said, we've been taught that ignoring someone is socially preferable. If you do something nice, if you, if you don't have something nice to say, then don't say anything at all, right? But ostracism actually leads people to feeling more helpless, like they're not worthy of any attention at all, end quote. And so the study was basically saying that it was actually more painful to feel ignored than it was to be harassed. Now, I don't know if that plays out across everyone's experience or not, but I do know that being ignored is frustrating and even hurtful. But who, there's one person who doesn't ignore us, and that is God. And this is what we're going to find out here. Now, there's a passage that may come to your mind right away. You might be thinking, well, what about Psalm 66, 18, where it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What about that? Well, that's saying someone who is calloused in their sin, and they're not willing to cry out to God. They're not willing to reach out to God for mercy. And uh, so God says that prayer, whatever they're praying, isn't uh, going to communicate. That's not what's being said here. What, what, what the point I'm going to make today is that um, God, He will listen to us. Now, here's what I want, us to, I want us to read in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You remember he had been thrown into the sea. Uh, last week we talked about that. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me in the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. In your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let me just give you a quick reminder of the map of where we have been. You'll remember that Assyria is up where you see the B there on the graphic. And um, you know that he was down. He's from uh, that city, Gath Hefer, right underneath Israel there, where A is at, or right near where A is at. He was supposed to go to Nineveh, but instead he went down to Joppa. And he was going to Tarshish. We, we're not exactly sure where Tarshish is. We think it was in the southern part of Spain there. And it was somewhere along that path. Uh, the sense is that it was fairly quick into the journey, but we don't have that explicitly stated. But um, that there was somewhere along where is where what we're talking about today happened in the sea. Here's what I want us to, I'm going to remind us of several times throughout the sermon today, and that is this. God graciously answers our imperfect pleas for mercy. If we, if we leave with nothing else today, this is what I want us to walk away with, that God graciously answers our imperfect pleas for mercy. And we see this here of Jonah in the sea, in the belly of this fish for three days, praying to the Lord and God hearing his imperfect, as we will see as the story develops, his imperfect plea for mercy. How are we going to impact this? Three points this morning. First of all, we typically only ask for mercy when we understand our desperate need of it. That's something we need to understand about calling out for mercy, is that typically speaking, the only time that we're going to even ask for mercy is when we have an understanding of our desperate need for mercy. I mean, look at Jonah's situation here. Here he was, he was in this fish, and he was swallowed up. Now, he had every reason to think that he was going to die. When he was cast into the sea, you have to understand, Jonah thought that was it. Jonah thought that his life was over, but yet he, and so and yet a fish comes and, and swallows him. But before he does that, there was a time where he was in the water and he's describing that. He describes how weeds were wrapped around his head in verse five at the roots of the mountain. As he was sinking into the sea, he was, the seaweed was ensnaring him and, and wrapping around him. And he's, he's, he's describing that uh, what he was going through as he was in this sea before the fish swallowed him up and then after the fish swallowed him up. 
And so his physical safety was something where he was saying, I need mercy. Did you notice in verse 7, it says, when my life was fainting away. What he's talking about there is when he was running out of air. Because when you're in the sea, you're holding your breath, and you're holding your breath, and you're holding your breath. And here, he says, when my life was was uh, fainting away, I'm running out of air. He says, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you. And so in the midst of physical safety, that being compromised, Jonah's situation was that he understood his desperate situation. He understood that he needed mercy if he was going to survive this. But it wasn't just a physical thing. It was also spiritual. Did you notice in verse 4 when he says, I am driven away from your sight? Now, now, we need to compare that. If you remember back in chapter 1, remember in verse 3 of chapter 1 where he says that Jonah, he rose to flee to Tarshish. Where? From the presence of the Lord. This was something that he wanted initially, but once he got it, he realized that he needed God's mercy to get him out of it. So we should be careful with our desires, right? I mean, many times what we earnestly want is the last thing we actually need. And this is the case with Jonah. But he says here, he says, I'm driven away from your sight. But verse 4, he says, yet. Did you notice that? He says, this is what's happened to me. I'm driven away from your sight. He felt like he was being, that God was rejecting him and moving him away from him. He says, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Why was that important? Why was it important for him to talk about the holy temple? What was in the temple? He had many different things that the Bible describes that were in the temple, different courtyards and things. But as you entered into the temple itself and you would progress through and you get to the place where only the great high priest could go, the high priest could go in once a year, and that was the Holy of Holies. And in there, the Ark Covenant over the top where the priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. And what would he sprinkle that on? What was it called? The mercy seat. You see, he says, I will look in your holy temple. He's saying, I will see your mercy, even though that I am being cast away from your presence. He was calling out for mercy. So he was asking for mercy simply because he understood his desperate need of it. Before, he didn't think that he needed God's mercy as much. I mean, intellectually, he would have agreed with that, right? He, he would have said that, but the way he was living, it was like, no, they need, not me. I, I don't need mercy, and he definitely didn't want them to have mercy. But here, we get this sense of physically and spiritually, he understood that he needed mercy. What about our situation? How does it, how does it compare? Like, do, do we have a sense that we every day are in desperate need of God's mercy. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that this is a realization that happens once in our life and then it's no longer. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that we need to ask God for mercy when we ask him to save us from our sins and then that's it. The reality is that you and I have to live in the mercy of God each and every day. And we have to understand that we desperately need God's mercy. But I just as individuals, what about our country? Are we praying for God's mercy on us? Do we think that our country really needs God's mercy? Are we just kind of waiting for it to be great? 
Are we just kind of waiting for it to be back to glory or whatever it is? Or are we earnestly asking God to be merciful towards us? Let me give you some one example of why we desperately need God's mercy. And this is the subject of abortion. You know, it's hard to get a good number of statistics on abortion because reporting is not mandatory. And let me just say, if, if anyone here or anyone watching has had an abortion, my, my goal is not to shame or to, uh, to reap guilt upon you or heap guilt upon you. But I do need to point out that this is a tragedy of our nation. And yes, there's forgiveness for that. And so if, if you, someone here or someone watching, has had an abortion, that's not an unpardonable sin. There's forgiveness and there's grace and there's mercy, absolutely. But we live in a culture right now where it is celebrated unashamedly. There's people who applaud the latest terms of abortion in our government. Let me give you some statistics that I could dig up. And again, these are probably underrepresented because it's not mandatory. In Wisconsin in 2017, I found that there was 6,360 abortions one year. In our country that year, there was 862,320 abortions. That's a lot of souls. That's a lot of people. If you go back in the statistics, of the, the sites that I was finding, I could only go back to 1970. From 1970 to 2017, there's 47,275,630 abortions on record. That's an amazing amount of people. What I did was is I took the, the latest populations of the Midwest, of, of, of Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, and I tallied all of their populations. You know what number I came up with when I did that? I came up with 47,242,063. So if you were to take all the populations of these states that, that according to that and just wipe them out, that is the amount of abortions we've had since 1970. We need God's mercy. These are image bearers. 47 million image bearers gone. And again, I, I, I feel like that we need to be on our knees asking God to be merciful to us and to change this. This is just one example. We could talk about trafficking. We could talk about all these other things where there's just terrible things that are happening in our country. But the point is, is that we need to see ourselves as desperately needing God's mercy, individually and as a nation. So let me just encourage us to be praying for our nations, be praying for our soul, that we we, we earnestly see and understand our need of God's mercy. And so that's the question. Do you see yourself as needing God's mercy? Do you, or do you think that you are more deserving of mercy than someone else? If that's true, we're not really understanding the desperate need. If we minimize our sin with excuses, we don't realize our situation. Or if we easily rationalize not obeying God's clear commands, we don't think we need God's mercy then. And so let me just encourage us we need to learn from Jonah here and understand our desperate situation that as individuals and as a nation, we need God's mercy. 
But remember, this is the theme of the message today. God graciously answers our imperfect pleas for mercy. And here, Jonah understood that he needed to cry out for mercy in an imperfect way. Secondly, I want to point out, though, as we walk through this chapter today, I want to point out that God often grants mercy through means that we least expect. God often grants mercy through means that we least expect. Obviously, for Jonah, it was a fish. And um, obviously, this is is not something that uh, Jonah would have uh, anticipated or anyone would have anticipated. Um, Normally, being swallowed by a fish would mean certain death. I'm guessing um, it's not happened to me, uh, but I don't think that that would definitely be something that you could count on um, you know, throughout history, there's been like one or two uh, stories of someone being swallowed alive and then being and, and then um, still surviving that. It's hard to prove that some of that was debunked later on, and so it's just we don't know if that's ever happened before. So, in some ways, this was just a, a, a almost miraculous intervention and display of mercy by God, and He used a fish as a vehicle of that. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Some people at this point in the story, they kind of miss the forest for the trees here a little bit here when they come to this section of the story. They want to focus so much on the fish and they want to focus so much on how this is improbable that this could happen. And, And if you look at even the amount of time spent about talking about the fish in this, it's only just a couple verses really. This is not the main point of the story, but it has become the main uh, understanding of it, unfortunately. And sometimes this has tripped people up, but I like what G. Campbell Morgan, the the old preacher from the 19th century, he said this, men can build, 19th and 20th century, rather, the 20th century, men can build a submarine boat to carry 100 passengers, but they deny the great God the power to prepare a fish to carry one. You know, it's true, God, God he, he, you know, we have all of our technology that we can do. Well, God can't create a fish that then make Jonah survive for three days. I think he can. But think about it, in this, in this fish, it had to be uncomfortable. This was not something that God, this means of mercy that God brought to him was not something that was easy and comfortable for him. It was, it was uncomfortable. The, 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 the smell must have been overwhelming in that situation. The darkness had to be disorienting to him. The sounds probably were very unsettling. Uh, No doubt it was probably very hot in there. In short, it had to be a horrific experience for Jonah, yet it was a means of mercy by God. In some ways, we could call it a merciful lifeboat. It was his salvation, we saw in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this reminds me, this reminds me of the ark. And it saved Noah. It had to be uncomfortable. It had to be messy. But it was his salvation and it was a means of mercy. It reminds me also of the church. The church is messy. It's uncomfortable at times. But... It is God's means of mercy and grace. And so for Jonah, we said that God grants mercy through means we least expect. This was, this was a, a, a fish for him. But for the world, it was a cross. 
You see, the cross seemed like a triumph for the enemy. It was uncomfortable. It was horrific. This was something that Jesus endured. And we know that this was a parallel that Jesus himself makes when in Matthew 12, he talks about him being greater than Jonah. And he talks about how that as Jonah was in the belly of this fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the grave for three days. And so this parallel to what Jesus did for us and what Jonah endured, this was a parallel that Jesus himself made. And so for Jonah, the means of mercy that was odd, that was unfathomable, that was horrific, was a fish. But for you and for me, the the means of mercy is a horrific cross that Jesus bore and Jesus hung on. It was terrible. But yet, it it was humiliating. But yet, this was something that Jesus endured And Hebrews tells us that it was with joy he did this, even though in the garden, he in his humanity, he was dreading it. And he understood the terribleness of this, of what was going to happen. And it was something that was horrific. And yet he with joy in the end gave up his life. Why? Because so that you and I could experience the mercy of God. So think of what Jesus did for us. The means of his mercy may seem difficult, but it is for our good and God's glory. And how God works mercy in your life and grace in our life. It may not always be pleasant. It may not always be good. It may not always be uh, comfortable, but it is good. I think of Paul when and, uh, he talks about the thorn in his flesh, the apostle, and he says that lest he become conceited, God put, sent a messenger from Satan to afflict him. That was mercy. Think about that. That was mercy that God was saying, I'm not going to allow you to go down this path. And so I'm going to send someone to afflict you. I'm going to send this trial to afflict you. And we're not exactly sure of all what that was. There's a lot of theories out there, but it doesn't matter. There was something that Paul recognized that was uncomfortable and that was difficult. And it was something that, was, that bothered him and something that he asked multiple times to be taken from him. But in the end, Paul said that it was something of God's love and God's mercy towards him. And so, as we live the Christian life, understand that just because difficulty comes, that doesn't mean that God has turned his back on you. Rather, it most probably means that he's showing mercy and grace and love towards us. This is what Jonah was experiencing here. And so Jonah almost missed out on the joy of experiencing the steadfast love of God. Did you see that in verse 8? I want to just draw your attention to verse 8. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He says, you know, he's comparing really God with worthless idols here. He's comparing following after something that isn't true, but yet captures our affections and will not last. And he's saying that those who pay regard, those who give their attention to, those are the ones who follow these things, they forsake their hope of understanding what steadfast love really is. In mercy, if you will. If you follow idolatry, if you follow the things that capture our affections and our hearts that, and take a place in our lives that only God should have, then we're, what we're doing is we're forsaking the experiencing of steadfast love. Because what Jonah is saying here, he's saying, these vain idols can't give you steadfast love. 
He's saying the things that we are drawn to, the things that capture our, our, our attention and our desires and the things that have rule over us when they should not, he says, they will not show you steadfast love because only the true God will show you steadfast love. And so Jonah almost missed out on that here. But he teaches us, he said, follow the mercy of God. Plead for the mercy of God. Understand that it may come through means that, are, that you would least expect and it may not be comfortable, but it is the steadfast love of God. And what this goes to show you is it goes to show us how important God's love and God's mercy is to him for him to show to us. Think of the great lengths that God will go. Think of the patience that he is displaying here. Think of what he is doing, the long suffering that God is displaying here so that Jonah can experience the steadfast love of him. And the same is true for you and for me. And as God works in our lives and often uses uncomfortable means and things that we never would plan and we never would chart on the course of our life when we're making a 10-year plan, we never would plot this out. But they are intentioned, if you're a believer in Christ, they are intended for mercy and for his steadfast love. So the means of mercy may be difficult, but it is for our good. Let me remind you once again that God graciously answers our imperfect pleas for mercy. And so we have Jonah, we have him understanding his desperate need, we have God answering through an uncomfortable and unusual way. But there's a word there where I talk about our imperfect pleas for mercy. Let me talk about that just for a couple minutes. You see, God shows mercy to imperfect, or we could say fickle, people. And there's, there's a few ways that, that point to this, this reality. Uh, first of all, the, the very definition of mercy points to this reality that God shows mercy to fickle people. Um, you know, mercy uh, can be described in, in, in different ways. Um, um, I don't know if I put the sentence I did not. Okay. Um, it, in uh, one of the dictionaries I have, a dictionary of the Bible, it says this, God's mercy is more than punishment withheld. It actively helps those who are miserable due to circumstances beyond their control. Let me say that again. God's mercy is more than punishment withheld. Rather, God's mercy actively helps those who are miserable due to circumstances beyond their control. So by the very definition of mercy is that God is withholding something that we deserve, but yet he's also offering aid and comfort at the same time. And so this idea that God shows mercy to imperfect, fickle people is just bound up in, in the reality of even the definition of mercy. Because it is precisely the fact that we are imperfect, that we need mercy. It is precisely the fact that we uh, are fickle people, that, that we have to plead for mercy. And so God doesn't withhold mercy from those who realize that. He doesn't withhold it from people who are imperfect. Rather, that's who mercy is intended for. So the definition of it points to this reality, but also this whole book of Jonah does. It highlights this. The fickleness of Jonah is, is going to be seen as it, it, it's, this plays out. Um, his prayer seems very sincere. People are divided on this of whether or not he is sincere in this or whether or not it was incomplete. We're going to see next week as he goes to Nineveh and he does preach. It's not the same. It's not the complete message that God asked him to preach. He withholds certain things. We're going to see in two weeks of how that he responds when Nineveh does repent. 
And so we understand that at the, at the very least, Jonah is fickle. At the worst, he's just completely insincere. I don't know which it is. I don't know his heart. It seems to me that here in chapter 2, there is some sincerity there. But God knows what Jonah's going to do. And he still shows mercy. Because remember, this is not primarily about the fish. This is not primarily about even the Ninevites, I don't believe. I believe it's about Jonah and the work that God is doing in his life. This was unusual for a prophet to, to respond in this way and to be so transparent in this way. But we're seeing the mercy of God and we're seeing how he shows it to fickle people. His vow payment is only going to be partial. He says in verse 9 that he will pay it, but next week we're going to see he doesn't do it in full. Uh, he says that, but yet here he comes back to the conclusion, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so God shows mercy to these people even though they're fickle and imperfect. And I find great, great comfort in that. Because not only does the definition of mercy in the book of Jonah point to this, but our personal experiences point to this as well, does it not? My own personal experience affirms this reality that God's mercy goes into fickle people because there's too many times I'm fickle. There's too many times where I am one way uh, on one day and the next day something completely different. There's a book called The Enemy Within by Chris Lungard. I encourage people to read it. It's, it's a really good book. And basically what uh, the author does is he takes an old Puritan work and he updates it. And he, and he writes it in a way that um, is helpful. He takes one of John Owen's works, and, and who was a Puritan, and he, he writes it with modern illustrations and modern language and things like that. And uh, it, it makes you know some, his own unique uh, contributions, of course. But it's really, really helpful. Let me, let me share a couple quotes with you. He says this, The heart is deceitful above all things. Do you doubt it? Think how fickle you are. One day you're a sage, the next a clown. You can be open and cheery or reserved and gloomy. Easy to get along with or a real crank. Romantic or frosty. One day Jesus is all the world to you. The next, you love the world more than King Midas did. And think of your inconsistencies. Your mind says tithing is right and you will put your money in the plate, but all the while you wish God weren't so demanding. Or you know that secret communion with God is a feast for your soul and you long for it, but you can't roll out of bed. Or if you do, your mind zooms everywhere in the universe except to heaven. Can you identify with that? I can identify with that. I can identify that one day I'm like, okay, God, you and me, we're doing this forever. Man, okay, the, you know, nothing has hold of my affections anymore. Nothing has hold of this. There's, there isn't anything at all that could distract me from you. And it feels like 30 seconds later, right? It feels like just a few minutes later, then what am I doing? I'm going back to these things. How many times in the scriptures do we are we warned? Don't go back. Don't go back. Why is it a constant theme? Is because God knows that that is our temptation. And here's what the book of Jonah does for me. It gives me great hope that in those moments of fickleness, in those moments of times where I turn my back on God, God's mercy is available to me. And I can call out to him. And he's not going to say, yeah, but you said this before. Yeah, I've heard this from you before. He's not going to do that. 
He is a merciful, merciful God. This is the reason why the theme of this book to me is the deep mercy of God. I identify with that old hymn, or that, that hymn, Come the Fount of Every Blessing, the line where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And so this is something that our personal experience validates this truth, that mercy comes, that God gives mercy to imperfect, fickle people. See, God doesn't dispense mercy based on our merit. That goes against even the definition of it. God dispenses mercy based on our our understanding of our need of mercy. I like what Tim Keller said. He says, if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for mercy. So it doesn't matter how bad we are. God's mercy is greater. Though our sins, they are many. His mercy is more, right? So I've told you that all along this is, uh, that I want you to, to remember that God graciously uh, answers our imperfect pleas for mercy. And it wasn't just being at the bottom that changed Jonah, it was praying at the bottom. He says, I remembered the Lord in verse 7. Reminds me of like the prodigal son where it says, and when he came to himself, God's mercy was available. So don't miss out on the joy of recognizing God's steadfast love. Here's what I hope that you leave with today. I hope you leave with a better appreciation for God's deep mercy. I hope that there's a reawakening of your need for God's mercy. And I hope there's a sense of urgency to pray for God's mercy on our nation, on our hearts individually, but also on our nation. So let me give you some homework to think about. Here's what I would encourage you to do sometime this week. Ask God to help you see sin the way he sees it. This should be a part of our daily prayers. I mean, this should be when we're talking to God every day, this should be something we're consistently asking God, help me to see sin the way you see it. Now, the reason why I say that is because that's going to help us understand our need for mercy. You see, a lot of times we, we just, we, we gloss over our sin or we, we, we explain it away and, 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 uh, if, and we don't see it the way God sees it. If that's what we're doing, then we're never going to ask for mercy. We're never going to plead for mercy and we need it. So ask God to help you see sin the way he sees it. Second, let me encourage you to make a list and then share 10 examples of God showing grace and mercy to you. I say share it because, you know, I would love to hear this and, and uh, you can email them to me. That would be a great encouragement to me. But more than that, not just me, don't just share it with me. Uh, you can, you know, post it. What, what a testimony that would be if we started filling our Facebook feed with, here's an example of God's mercy in my life. It sure would be a, a nice break from a lot of what's on Facebook, right? So here's an example. Here, here's 10 ways that God has been merciful to me in my life. Let me encourage you to share that. I would love to read it personally. If you don't want to share it with the whole world, but you're willing to share with me, that'd be awesome. But I would love just to, to, for us to share it far and wide 
It could be times where you didn't get the punishment that you deserved, or it could be times where you received aid when you didn't deserve it. It it could be times maybe when a bad circumstance turned out for good and God used that as as for good. There's a lot of different ways that you could write about these things, but just make a list, and it doesn't have to be 10, but it's just a good goal to set, I think, when we have a number sometimes. Then lastly, let me encourage you to spend time this week thanking God for his long suffering with your fickleness. And then ask God to help you be patient with other people's fickleness. And this is how we have unity in the church. And this is how, even though there's bumps along the way, this is a time, this is where, you know, there's, there's things along the way. But if we come back to these realities, God will keep us focused on what is most important, and that is the cross. So let me encourage you to remember that God graciously answers our imperfect pleas for mercy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could spend time looking at Jonah 2 here. Lord, I do pray that as we sing this last song, that the, it would resonate even more after thinking about this, that our sins, though, are many. They are many. Your mercy is more. Thank you for that. Help us to see our desperate need of mercy. Help us to embrace your unusual vehicles of mercy. And thank you that you hear our imperfect pleas for mercy. To you be all glory and honor. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.